Welcome back to another episode of the Care to Listen podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by healthcare professional Mikhail Nissenboyam, who shares his story as an immigrant moving to Canada, talks about his mental health struggles while supporting a family, and the nuanced experience of being a man in a traditionally female-dominated healthcare industry. Today's episode is being broadcasted to you on the unceded and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Trigger warning. This podcast discusses topics that may be triggering for some viewers, including suicide, loss of a patient, and addiction. So hello and welcome back to another episode of the Care to Listen podcast. I'm joined today by special guest Mikhail Nissenboyam. Welcome to the show, Mikhail. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to cover everything from your upbringing, your story, um, your transition, being a refugee, um, and then progressing into the healthcare industry, uh, talking a little bit about what it's like to be a male in a a female-dominated industry, um, as well as some of the other challenges that have grown up or have gotten by in in your current life. So I'm curious, maybe just to start us off, could you maybe just introduce yourself and let the audience know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Mikhail. I'm uh, I'm a healthcare professional, and I've been uh, working in a long-term care for the last uh, 16 years. Um, I was born in uh, uh, Ukraine, which uh, it was at that time was Soviet Union, um, to a Jewish family, and uh, uh, life I, life was very difficult uh, for for Jews. Uh, at that time so my family tried to uh, immigrate when I was one years old in 1979 uh, because uh, Soviet Union at that time was able to uh, uh, they let only a certain amount of Jews out of the country at that time but fortunately my family missed that opportunity so um, and I grew up in uh, under the communist regime um, and went through everything you know we we always were second class citizens uh, living in that country. Uh, so the next opportunity came around in 1988, and uh, at the time, I, my my mom, I, my my mother was divorced from my father. Um, they got divorced when I was six years old, and uh, uh, the only people that I had in my life was my mother and uh, my grandma and my grandmother's sister. So it was uh, two older two old women, my mom and myself. And uh, and we decided that you know the life for us wasn't an option living in that place, and uh, we, with a five or six bags to our name, we uh, we got on a bus and uh, and then we went on a long journey that that took almost a year to get to United States as refugees. Yeah, I can imagine just you know being such a young young guy at that age and not really knowing what that meant or the experience that you you were about to begin and the journey you're about to embark on what was that like that transition and you know how from a mental health perspective how did that show up when you uh, started to settle in and um, live in the US uh, it, it's a, it was a very uh, <laughs> Scary is not probably even a word to to describe the feeling um, being uh, having absolutely nothing because the Soviet Union at the time uh, when you leave the country they stripped you of your citizenship and you you have nothing and you don't know where you belong you don't know where you know where you can end up we always had a path to Israel um, but my my mom uh, I think one of the biggest reasons why they wanted to leave the country was because they did not want me to join the military and there was a um, an obligated two-year uh, service with Soviet Union and uh, being a Jew was uh, almost a death sentence uh, going into something like that because they put you in a not a very desirable uh, place so uh, that was for you know that's why she really wanted me out of there and being living because the process was very long it was uh, you know we had I had to live in um, in Vienna Austria for about a few months, and then Italy we lived for close to a year, uh, waiting to be uh, finding out where we're gonna end up, and uh, just being by myself, feeling, just having you know, just having being feeling like like you know, I needed to be a man, and uh, I was the only man in my family that needed to protect and you know watch over my, it was only me, my, you know, my mom and two older ladies, and just everything we had was in in the bags, 
so it was very uh yeah it was a very difficult and scary uh, uh scary experience that probably lasted forever with me kind of i think kind of lingers throughout my life yeah and hearing how just your approach to life now and understanding being a male in that female dominated industry do you feel like part of that experience growing up as a child has now translated into you know giving you better awareness and being able to navigate um, some of those structures and what it might be like in a um, traditionally female-dominated industry? Yeah, like I think I, uh, you know, growing up just with my with my with my mother and uh, um, and just uh, and and to, and to older ladies and, uh, and and everything that I had to go through. Yeah, I, I think I am able to read better people. I'm, I'm able to uh, to kind of assess my situations a bit better. Um, I think reading people is, is extremely important in my in my in my in my job, especially you know when you're dealing with somebody with mental health problems, and but also you know just being for your, there for your coworkers, right? Being able to uh, comfort them or just to if I'm if I'm there that they feel more safer when when we're dealing with a more dangerous or you know uh, or stressful situation. It helps that you're a pretty big big guy here. That. <laughs> that, that helps I, and, and it, it, it works you know uh, it could it could be I find that sometimes it can be um, a positive thing or a negative thing I find mm-hmm. that, that sometimes you know it, it all depends on approach sometimes I can walk in a room and I can diffuse a situation just with my presence and because you know just the way that, that a, uh, a resident can respond to my to me being there versus or sometimes I can walk into the situation in a room and make it worse um, so it's just uh, you have to basically approach each situation differently and kind of assess. So let's jump back then to that period of time you immigrated to the U.S. How did you ultimately end up in the healthcare uh, industry? Well, well, the getting to healthcare was took a long time, um, but uh, I think in the end, like if I had to kind of quickly summarize it, would be. Uh, I did have to take care of my my elderly grandmothers after my my mom kind of went through a rough time, so she kind of left, abandoned me when I was in my, at a very early age, and um, so I was kind of later in my life was uh, ha- having to take care of uh, both uh, elderly women with uh, both in the with dementia. Mm. Um, the first time I experienced dementia was when my grandma, my I call her grandma, but it was my my grandmother's sister. Uh, she uh, just one day just woke up and uh, did not know who I was. Was looking straight at me and didn't know who I was. It was very sudden. And she she looked at me and you know called me by a different name and looked around the house and did not realize where she was. And she was just storming out of the house and and uh, you know doesn't matter what I what I said. Like no, I'm not home. I need to get home. And uh, I remember having to call an ambulance and we had yeah. to pretty much put her in the home at that time. And being a healthcare professional yourself, you know, and maybe not at this time, but, you know, having the understanding and the awareness of what dementia is and how it shows up with respect to your work, do you think that now having that understanding and awareness, would have it helped you um, when you were personally experiencing a family member who was, who was going through dementia? Yeah, well, definitely with my experience now, it would have been, been, would have been a different approach, um, you know. There's so many regrets, you know. You have, you know, like you. I think a lot of even family members they they struggle with this on a daily basis, and having to fight, you know, kind of like guilt and things that they, you know, putting their loved ones and surrendering the loved ones to a place like like where I work. I think it's a very very difficult thing for a lot of families to deal with because it, and but it's I think it's very hard for for families overall to. Just, I mean, on the, it all depends on the severity of the illness and how far it progresses in a person's life. Mm-hmm. Um, that it could be, you know, it could be something from my, like my grandma actually, the my actual grandma, she did get the dementia uh, later, but she was able, I was able to take care of her much longer um, before she had to go into a home uh, because it was just progressing on a much slower rate. And uh, she just became you know, a bit confused here and there, and but 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 I was able to. To help her more, and I and we didn't have to kind of give her up, but um, yeah, it's a it's a process. I think that uh, everyone it's a very it's a very difficult thing to. But I see families constantly struggling with this. 
And what do you think about, you know, other co-workers? We talked a little bit about it today, whether it's working with patients who have dementia um, and relating some of those experiences back to your personal experience or, you know, patients who consistently are passing away and dealing with death on a daily basis. What's that like and what's the toll does that that take on your personal mental health? Oh, it's 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 uh, it's huge. Um the the thing is i think a lot of people don't realize that professions a lot of people in going through their normal life do not experience um do not experience death like you know on a daily basis or weekly basis they uh it happens uh you know once in the you know and it's, and it's devastating when it happens in your life um but we're expected to just basically you know just move on. We, you know, somebody passes away, and, and and it's 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 weird sometimes when when I look at my coworkers how we all deal with it in our own little way. I was talking to my coworkers recently, and somebody kind of told me this, and it's not my own words, but they said that it's kind of being like a soldier on the battlefield. They find it like you know they lose people that they care about, mm. and they kind of have to keep on going. They kind of have to keep on fighting, you know, and. Uh, and I never thought of that like that, but uh, yeah, it it, it it affects you. It, it definitely affects you within, in your everyday life. You don't think it does. You you think it's it's just something part of your job, but I don't think it's a normal human mechanism. That's not how we people as people kind of deal with death in a normal normally. And I think we're just gonna expect it just to move on, and we don't. I think we pretend that we do, but I think a lot of times it kind of I think manifests itself in different things. In our relationships and uh just how we you know we how we deal with it at home absolutely and i know you know you're somebody who has an, uh, an amazing supportive wife tara also in the the healthcare yes. industry what do you guys do to process and work through some of that grief and loss that vicariously you're living through by having some of your patients who are passing away well uh, it, it definitely helps to be able you know to talk to someone that understands like she understands completely that not only she understands she knows who I'm talking about right she knows how much that person affected my life yeah we overbond with our patients but some of them more than others right some people are extremely special into your life they become like your grandparents and they become somebody you you love and um, and we both love this love that person so much that it was uh, when when they pass away it's a devastating it's a devastating thing. And at work, we do try to kind of talk about things like that with our coworkers. We kind of, we talk about the fun times we had with these people, you know, and a lot of times we bring them up constantly, like we remember this person. But with someone that I live with, my wife, yeah, we definitely, when I come home, when, you know, some, when I'm bothered and stuff, that I can actually have that opportunity to, to talk. A lot of my coworkers don't have that opportunity. You know, they come home and their husbands or their wives do not understand what they go through now every day and if we jump back to your your personal journey your experience you're somebody who i know has an immense amount of empathy and support and understanding for people who may be going through difficult times what or you know from your journey perspective how how has that shown up for you in in your life well uh, in my journey my in uh I have a few difficult things in my life that happened to me that I had to overcome. Um, part of it was when, when when my mom, when we immigrated to New York, it was very, you know, my mom, she was an engineer in Soviet Union and then coming to New York, she needed to upgrade and having no English and not having the skills needed to upgrade, she became a babysitter. And I think part of that just she fell into a very deep depression and started drinking on a daily basis. Um, she became a really bad alcoholic. Um, and uh, being, I remember, because me and my mom, we left, I didn't live with my grandma. We, She wanted to live on her own. She was me and my mom. And uh, she started drinking very heavily when I was about 13. And I can tell you that as a 13-year-old boy living in New York City, in Brooklyn, and... Uh, Having your mom drunk every single night was extremely devastating. It was a devastating experience just because you feel so vulnerable 
that vulnerability being like, you know, if something happened right now, there was a fire, there was uh, some kind of an emergency, like, what am I going to do? Like, I have nobody else to, to, there's nobody there to protect me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm it. I'm, I'm the adult in the room now. Mm-hmm. So that was a very scary um, experience. I remember having to, I, she would get drunk and she would usually kill a bottle every night and I would have to, no, I would go and I would, if, if she didn't finish it, I would dump it down, down the toilet just because I was, it was, it was, it was, it was a very scary thing. And, um, and, and I, she struggled with that, I think, until the end of her life. And obviously having to, you know, grow up much faster than, you know, any other uh, individual who, you know, 11-year-old boy. I mean, I think that's, you're basically being asked to be an adult yeah. like right away. And I can only imagine, um, you know, the challenges that that would have been and, you know, I think we're really lucky to have someone like yourself who has the wherewithal, who has gone through so many of these different experiences in life and now has been able to build something for a family of eight yeah. with eight kids. Yes. Um, just casually throw that in there um, and really make a significant difference in the lives of others. So what do you think? Like, you know, hearing a little bit about your upbringing and your story, why do you think you've turned out the way that that you have or you are i think i could have went both ways i think and i see it with many people i think one way is you live this experience with your mother and then you just some people give up and then they kind of follow their parents footsteps and they do those things and i i i think that fear that fear that kept me from like i don't drink at all because of my mom, I never been drunk in my life. I never, I never uh, did any substance abuse in my life. Because that fear, I think, kind of, and and having to be responsible, uh, having to be, like I said, adult in the room, all, uh, at a very young age, kind of gave me that that focus that 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 I needed, you know. And now I see my children, you know. I can imagine uh, my children being in a situation that I was, and I never wanted that for them, you know, so that's, I think that's part of it, even, even like I said, sometimes my wife would be going out, she's like, we'll have a drink, like, you know, I'm like, no, I just can't, it's, it's just such a, it's just it's such a fear that I have mm-hmm. because of it. Well, and I, I truly applaud you for that, I mean, there's so many stories that we hear, whether it's, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, or... Yeah. The ability to really break that cycle, um, you know, for so so for someone for yourself to be able to see that and to to live that life of sobriety and to be able to continue down that path, it's nothing but applause and um, you know support from from my perspective. So then, you know, after that, um, you know, upbringing, then you fast forward, uh, you get into your your first marriage, and. You know, I know from our conversations that was a, was also a difficult time for you. Maybe you could share a little bit about that experience. Yeah, um, me, I was at that time. I was twenty three years old, and I um, I was in real estate uh, in New York. I was pretty successful, um, and uh, I met my first wife. She came to visit. She was from Canada. She was from from. Uh, from Surrey, actually, she and she came to visit New York, and we had mutual friend. Um, so uh, we hooked up and uh, uh, saw each other for that first week, and uh, basically, after talking on the phone for about a month or so, decided that you know we, yeah, I'm gonna come here to Canada and visit, and we're gonna, we, you know, we're going to see if we're gonna make this kind of a commitment because long distance relationships probably not gonna work out. So if we're going to be serious, we're going to be serious about it. So I, uh, I flew to Canada for the first time. And I remember talking to my mother on the phone. Um, she was, my mom at that time was actually, she was remarried and living in, in, in New Jersey. Still drinking heavily, I believe. Um, I wasn't living with her at that time, but uh, I, had, I, uh, I, I know of her, of her drinking was still pretty bad. And... Uh, 
I spoke to her on the phone when I landed in, in Canada, I remember. And I was very happy because, you know, I, I thought, you know, maybe there's going to be a very serious relationship that I'm going to know somebody that's probably I'm going to have a future with. And I met my, uh, uh, my ex-wife's, uh, I met her parents uh, the next day. And uh, a few days later, uh, me and her decided to make an, an engagement. Uh, so we had a pretty wonderful day. And uh, I remember it was evening time. and. I got a phone call from uh, uh, from New Jersey from her uh, from her uh, from her husband, and he told me that my mother killed herself. Hmm. So I uh, I remember when I heard those those words for the first time, I did not process them what's at all. Like I I actually you mean like because he said my your mom your mom died. And it's, I guess it was it was in Russian, <laughs> so it was a different different way that we talk about it. So it was like you know, somebody died, and I was like, "You mean my grandma died?" Because you know I would expect somebody who is a little more <laughs> that would make sense. Mm-hmm. But no, but he was reassuring me like multiple times. It was my mom that passed away, and I just I, I remember, and I remember like after that everything was just became a fog. I don't remember much I remember my ex-wife got the tickets back to New York um, we flew to New York and I drove to New Jersey and I think it's finally hit me when I got into the house uh, what has happened and yeah she had a fight with her husband got really uh, uh, really drunk and uh, hung herself on her t- on his ties so yeah that was uh, and yeah and pretty much at that point my life I I lost basically the only person that uh, that I had like you know I had my grandma but you know an elderly lady at that time already and, uh, one of them was already in the home and um, and the other one was about to go in the home so I, I really had nobody left you know well what a what a difficult story to tell and you know thank you for for sharing that I think you know listening to your story and, and seeing you speak about it it's something obviously that has has impacted you um it's something that we hope nobody has to go through having gone through it what was what was that feeling what was that sort of next step that you needed to take and realize that you know to move forward and live your life it was important for you to to do or to to move forward like how did you get through that unfortunately i made a big mistake (laughs) I uh, I didn't do I never spoke to anyone. I think the right thing would have been would have been to actually get some counseling, mm-hmm. very needed counseling in that moment. But just my culture and uh, being a man and not thinking when being young, you know, I I didn't do those steps. What I did was I couldn't face a lot of it. Number one, I I couldn't even look at her. I couldn't even look at her body. Like I had an opportunity to see her body. I I couldn't do it and now many years later I regret because I feel like I don't have a closure mm-hmm. you know I don't have that that realization that she passed away it's always in my head that she's still alive you know what I mean like it, it feels like it feels like that she just went away and uh, just never came back but because I never you know when I came to the house her things were still there like her, her you know the food that she just cooked was still there like that was very devastating I think um, so I didn't go right about the first like in that way I didn't have didn't get any counseling and I surrender myself completely to a person that I barely knew I let someone else take over completely for me and make all the decisions for me from that moment on and uh, it took me years I think to kind of came out of the haze um, I was I wasn't very badly depressed and I didn't even realize what I was doing. Uh, my ex-wife at that time, my, my, my fiance at that time, she just decided to uh, say, okay, well, you know, you have no family left now, you know, so you're going to move to Canada. Um, I'm, I'm packing your bags and I'm going to start your immigration process a second time. And uh, that's what happened. And uh, before I knew it, I was living in Abbotsford. <laughs> with absolutely nothing and starting from zero yeah uh, you know I'm losing all my friends losing all the connections that I have you know all the friendships that I made 
yeah, coming to to person I barely know, into a place I don't know, no no access to a vehicle, no no driver license even. It was yeah. And then at that moment, was that your first experience of then moving into the healthcare profession? Uh, no, it was uh, a few years later. I uh, by the time it took a, the immigration process took again a long time. Um, it took about a year to uh, to finally be, be, be become a landed immigrant in Canada. Uh, and that's, then I did a bunch of different jobs, uh, the painting and stuff like that. And then because my ex-wife was a nurse, I uh, she said, "Why don't you?" You know, why don't you uh, do something like that? You know, why don't you become a nurse? And I was like, yeah, I think, I think I might be good at it. And you know, so I went to school again, and and here I am. And so after that transition, you know, again having to go through the immigration process, grieving the loss of of your mom, um, you know, also to your grandma and your support systems. What now, looking back during that period of time, do you think would have been, you know, the most useful or beneficial for you? Or what do you wish you had during that that moment? I wish I had people to tell me and kind of counseling. I think I needed counseling. I needed to know, I needed to have tools, proper tools to deal with, with everything that I was going through. I was not prepared for any of it. Uh, mentally like you know I, it could have been so much worse um mm-hmm. thank god i had you know it didn't end up it could have you know very bad i mean i i'm I considering myself lucky that even though i had a failed marriage in the end but at least it wasn't you know something way worse you know absolutely um but i think when you go through something like this you definitely need you need people there for you uh, to be able to talk to, to be able to put everything into perspective and uh, and help you grieve. You know, you need that grieving process, uh, which I was I did not have. And then, you know, let's fast forward through that next period where you know you're you're living with your ex-wife. Uh, it wasn't the best relationship for no. you. Um, what and how did that period of your time end up? Um, she's not a, like my ex-wife is not a bad person. Uh, but I think surrendering myself the way I did, uh, kind of, she, she just, she has a very strong personality that kind of took over our relationship and, uh, and just basically, uh, you know, I had no say in anything. <laughs> You know, it was just her from, you know, from the beginning of our relationship to the end of our relationship was her way or the highway. And uh, um, I was, you know, now that I see it, even there was a lot of mental abuse um, in that relationship and um, anywhere from, uh, you know, I, I had to ask her for permission to buy a cup of coffee, you know. Um, but there was one point in my realization that my marriage was really failing was um, I... I caught, I caught Norwalk virus at work, and then uh, I came to work two days after catching the virus, and the symptoms start showing at work, and I was, I was very, uh, I started very, very, really sick. Um, I was feeling like I was going, I was going to throw up, and I called my ex-wife, and you know she's a nurse. She actually worked with me as well. She worked at the same facility with me, right? So. I called her and told her, I'm not feeling well. I think I need to go home. And she's like, no, you're going to go throw up in the bathroom and keep working. And uh, I I couldn't do it. I, I I was like, after a while, I was like, I went to my nurse and I said, no, I'm, I think I need to go home. I went home and I was, and I was just in the bathroom constantly uh, uh, throwing up. And, and she was just yelling at me and making me feel so little, you know, belittling me. And then... I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and my mouth was so dry and uh, I was asking for a glass of water and she told me to, no, well, you're not getting nothing. <laughs> I remember falling asleep, waking up, I remember, and my mouth dry and I couldn't even swallow. And I was like, I sat on the edge of the bed and thinking like, this is not where I want to be. <laughs> this is not the person that I can rely on. This is not the person that, that if I'm getting older, if I'm going to need her <laughs> by my side, you know, when I'm, when I'm, you know, when I actually need help. Uh, that's not the person that that is going to be there for me. 
And what was that impact, you know, having been in a relationship, um, you know, that wasn't the most supportive for you? What was that like showing up to work each day, not having the support that you needed, um, but then also having others rely on you for that support to give them care? How was that impacting your your ability to work each day? It's 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 very hard. Um, I mean, looking back, you know, when you're not happy in your life, and I find that even with, I'm not gonna say everyone, but I say you know, see with my coworkers, you know, um, your personal life uh, greatly affects everything you do. You know, you can be happy-go-lucky, you know, person walking in a room taking care of a, uh, a resident when uh, your life is falling all around you you know um, I see people you know you know just crying at work or being you know and that that affects not only them but it affects the resident right I mean we all have bad days but you know when you're constantly de depressed it's very visible mm -hmm. it's very visible to all your co-workers and uh, all my co-workers knew that I was I was very unhappy it was very visible throughout you know yeah, and so then, you know, you, you come to this realization, you realize that it's time to, to move on. Um, what, what transpired after that? Uh, I, uh, I met my best friend. I met my current wife, who is, you know, the best thing that can ever happen to me. And uh, I, I relaxed really, like, so that day when I uh, made, you know, sat at the edge of the bed and made, a, you know, I made a conscious choice that I was going to end my marriage. Um, I know I had two children with my ex-wife at that time, but I knew that my children is not going to be happy being in this marriage um, if I'm going to stay just for them. So I made a conscious decision that I'm going to end my marriage. And um, and then, um, well, I did. I met, I met, uh, I met my current wife, who has been my best friend and you know my soulmate. And we've been together for thirteen years, and it's been, uh, it's been like you know, you know, it's like winning, uh, like a winning lottery. <laughs> and that's what I can honestly say, as far as uh, my uh, in uh, in love, that's what I did. I in the end, I did win the lottery. Yeah, that's I mean, that's truly remarkable. Knowing some of the challenges and the, the struggles that you had to go to um, as part of your journey to get get to where you are today. Yeah, um, you know, and even having her here support you um, yeah. as we're doing this conversation, it's it's a testament, and I think you know something that you've worked really hard for and deserve. So I want to you know just put that out there as well. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Care for Caregivers Peer Support Line Care to Speak. Care2Speak is a peer-based phone, text, and web chat service that provides free and confidential support to health and social support workers in BC. For more information on how to connect with us, please visit the show notes below. When it comes to, you know, then you two building a life together, continuing to, to go to work um, and advance your career, let's fast forward then to 2019 yeah. and... Was it 2019? It was 2019. And then another um, car accident. Yeah. So walk us through this experience and, and what yeah. transpired there. Yeah, I was I was in uh, we were in Washington State uh, going shopping and we were on the highway and we all came to a stop and uh, we got rear-ended at 100 kilometers an hour by a truck. Um, I was there with me was me, my wife, and my uh, ten year and my ten year old son. And um, I saw the truck coming. Um, I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw it. I kind of braced for it, which I think was a bad thing to do. Um, and uh, about a day later, all the neuro, like neurological symptoms, kind of kicked in. I had a spinal injury. I had a C four, C five, like a uh, basically like an error like my disc got collapsed and uh, there's a narrowing that the nerve that was coming out of it out of the disc uh, didn't have any room to move so um, it was causing a lot of uh, nerve pain and uh, numbness in my left hand so yeah that uh, that pretty much at that moment ended everything in my life as far as my work I had to go on uh, disability and uh, then I started in the long journey 
of uh, trying to get back uh, and recovery. Yeah, and and going on disability, being able to leverage some of the supports that were in place. What what and how did that impact your ability to to recover? So once I got onto disability, I um, I had. I knew after talking to my doctors and everything else, I knew the only path forward was surgery. I needed surgery. And unfortunately in uh, in Canada, the wait times for something like this, I was looking for about five years just mm-hmm. to see a neurosurgeon. And then a couple of yeah. years after that to even uh, get my surgery. Uh, so I uh, thankfully for the amazing, um, benefits that were provided by my by my work and that uh, and that uh, um, uh, the long-term disability insurance company uh, took uh, took uh, everything into their own hands and uh, were able to provide for me um, a neurosurgeon so I could get my uh, surgery they paid privately so I could get my surgery quicker and were there any you know, impacts from a mental health perspective that transpired after yeah. this accident? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was in excruciating pain, um, 24 seven, um, seven days a week. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't sit down. I couldn't lay down. I couldn't, it was just, if it, the best way to describe it would be having like a toothache in your head um, that's constantly aching and nothing I did was taking was taking it away um i got low i got really low uh, as far as my my mood and willingness to go on at that moment um i think as people we kind of have you know we kind of see we kind of try to concentrate on the future and kind of see what i'm going to do in two years three years you know we kind of have that and i and i found that there was looking into the future i only saw suffering you know there was nothing there that i could focus on it was very i just wanted it to end and uh, i think if i did not have the surgery wasn't done as fast as it was done i don't know what i would have done because i would i got i got pretty low mm-hmm. um the only thing i think that was keeping me going was my you know, my wife had to probably suffer a lot. My kids had to suffer a lot seeing me like this. Um, just being, um, uh, it was, it was. I was depressed, like depression from pain. I think a lot of people can understand that. A lot of people, I think that's why they fall into substance abuse and things like that. It was because of the pain. A lot of people have some kind of a, you know, some kind of injury or something like that. So, and neurological pain, it's, it's indescribable. And why do you think yourself you had the wherewithal to be able to, you know, not fall into those, um, you know, coping strategies? Uh, the only the only thing that I focused on, uh, I started focusing on. I started focusing on my kids, my my family, and then I started focusing on uh, exercise. I started exercising and I started. Um, uh, I once I had I think once I had some kind of a, a goal like I knew I'm gonna get that surgery, I started ho- having a hope, you know, um, and that kept me going. The hope that I will be a better mm-hmm. because I don't think if I had the hope, I don't think I would have I would have made it. I think if I if I knew that I would be like years waiting and not knowing when I'm gonna have that. Like I mean, the funny thing is, like the doctor that my that my uh, my family doctor requested uh, for my for the neurosurgeon still hasn't phoned me, <laughs> and I already had surgery a few years ago, you know. So I I don't know what I would have done. And, uh, so you had that support structure in place, you know, your family, your wife, your kids. Yes. Was there anything else that was helpful for you um, outside of having that goal, having that? Um, you know, drive to to help yourself. Yeah, uh, for me, it was uh, this place that I went to was uh, was a core fitness. Uh, they're kinesiologists. That basically they were they were there for me to kind of train me, and you know, they gave me uh, 
you know, uh, exercises and things like that that I was able to, uh, it, it wasn't taking my pain away, um, but it was helping. Definitely. It was definitely helping. Mm-hmm. So on the mental front, unfortunately, <laughs> that's another place where I think I kind of, <laughs> I didn't get the proper um, being stubborn man and thinking that I can deal with it on my own. I think that was another mistake that I've made. So what, if there was any, you know, guys or anybody in general just listening to this podcast and maybe struggling themselves, what advice might you give to them or want to share with them? The biggest thing that I can probably give anyone as men is get help. Don't be, don't think that you can do this yourself. I was lucky. I'm really saying I'm really lucky that I didn't do something stupid. But I think the most important thing is getting help, being able to talk to somebody. I think even if your family is not good enough, I don't think it's good. You know, it's good to have somebody there that can talk to you. But sometimes you just need a different perspective. Sometimes you need somebody to kind of give you tools um, to kind of cope with the situation that you're in, you know. and I think that's extremely important. I think it's probably the most important thing that, that you can do. Absolutely. And I know we've we've talked about this before on this podcast, but the sense of hope and the ability to recognize that you're not alone. Yes. There's you know, other people who have gone through this and your your story and your journey is a, an example of that where, you know, there's times where it's going to be really dark and really lonely um, but you know, you, you come through those times and you lean on the people for those supports. So again, I can, you know, just applaud you with your, you know, being able to stick it out and to, to live with that hope and to eventually get through that period of time for you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, but, but, but as I mentioned, as, as great as everything in the end turned out for me, um, it could have been worse, and I'm, you know, looking back, definitely see the mistakes that I've made along the way. And uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I think that, and I think a lot of men. And uh, I was talking to, I was talking to somebody uh, recently, that uh, that was telling me like, uh, yeah, like we we're men, we we don't a lot of times we you know we go through these horrible things, and you know, and uh, we don't share it. We just we just kind of bottle it all inside and we think that we can deal with it. Oh, we're just going to put it on the shelf and I'm going to deal with it. And I seen it with my own. I see my coworker. I'm not, I don't want to mention, I'm not going to mention any names, but you know, he was going through, you know, a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of issues and, you know, dealing with death at work constantly and, you know, never bother him. And it was never, you know, kind of, you don't, you don't think that it was it was a big deal. And then one day that you just stumbled upon a person that passed away that he didn't expect the person to be, to pass away. And that had a nervous breakdown. You know, it was just something that snapped and that was it. And like, he can never work again. Mm. And he left work and permanently because that was it. That was the, the straw that broke the camel's back at the time. And do you think like from a work setting perspective, this is something that builds up over time or is, you know, in that specific instance, was it a individually isolated moment? No, it was a build up. It was a definitely a build up. It was because uh, oh, I, I talked to a person and they, they are getting mental help. Uh, they are they are getting counseling. Um, but they said it's definitely a build up. It's a build up with everything in their life led them to that moment that normally that would have just like okay well we're just gonna move on like normal and at that time no it wasn't they found the body and it was that's it 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 was just like a boom snap nervous breakdown complete you know complete meltdown and uh and they uh and they yeah they can (laughs) they have to deal with this uh now it's 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 such a difficult you know experience obviously i i can't speak from first-hand experience but having listened and spoken with many people who have shared the same sentiment that you're talking about there's a definite need to process to work through to to grieve um, you know even being in as a healthcare, um, not necessarily a specific family member of those 
patients who pass away. So, you know, again, I just want to come back to this idea around what supports are in place for healthcare practitioners? What do you suggest when you're chatting with a colleague who might be struggling? What, what sort of advice or guidance do you offer those colleagues? Uh, we do have support. Uh, we have something that's called family employee uh, assistance. Um, it's basically like counseling. Uh, we have them. We have like little posters even in the in the uh, in the back of the bathrooms. You know, if you're here and you're feeling down, you know, call this number. But not many people are not gonna call that number. Like I, I only know one person that actually used that that number. Um, I would if I if I. If it was up to me, I think it would be great that we would have almost, you know, there would, would be kind of once a month or something like that. There would be somebody there to come, you know, come into work and offer people personally, maybe, you know, some kind of a guidance or some kind of a, you know, help. Because a lot of times people just, they're just not going to do that. They're not going to initiate those, those things. They think either, you know, from from fear of, uh, you know, uh, thinking, you know, thinking that they're weak or that they, they, you know, it's just, or what the colleagues think of them, or, you know, like people are just usually don't in initiate these type of, uh, type of things. A lot of times they just, like I said, they, they just shelf those, those problems. And uh, I think maybe, maybe even having somebody that once a while that they can offer, they can come in and offer those, you know, Maybe have like an in-service on mental health, and uh, and after that, saying like, hey, anybody you know feels this way, you know, after we talked about, you know, they, they we we can talk more, you know. Absolutely, and when I hear you know your story again, having all those personal um, experiences of dealing and going through mental illness, and having you know close family members struggle and ultimately you know succumb to. Um, their illness and then you know yourself going through it and having similar thoughts I gotta ask the question why are you here today telling your story what do you hope to accomplish by telling this story well my my biggest thing is if I can if I can if, if I can reach even one person that is struggling and going through a hard time right now if they can just one person and you know pick up the phone call someone reach out to someone that they, they can you know that you know that they're not alone so if we talk a little bit about yourself and your experience of immigrating from the u.s to canada then starting to work in the healthcare industry what do you think it's like being an immigrant and coming into the canadian healthcare system and and trying to navigate some of those challenges yeah i see i see issues every single day um like a lot of people don't realize how stressful our jobs are, um, especially if you're you're casual, <laughs> you're casual, you're immigrant. You know, you your English is not the greatest. You know, you give an assignment, you have an assignment of let's say eight eight residents that you don't know what they're like. You know, you're coming in the room, you're reading ADLs, and you do not know. ADL might tell you a little bit about it, but you know, you don't know who, what you're dealing with. And, you know, and not only that you have to manage, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you have to manage uh, your assignment. You have to be able to care for these people in a very short amount of time. You also have to deal with uh, physical abuse and you have to deal with mental abuse. Uh, you have to deal with family members that, you know, might not like, you know, the way you did certain things for your for their parent, you know. There's a lot of things, and I find it definitely impacts mostly uh, the immigrants um, in the in the healthcare industry. Um, having struggling with English and having a different culture is definitely um, I find a big struggle. And I also find I think a lot of times I as much as I'm not gonna say anything bad about you know schooling and how you know what's lacking. But it, I also want to emphasize that, uh, you know, there's those type of challenges, but challenges people need to realize that our jobs are not, uh, it's not a conveyor belt. You know, we're dealing with human lives. And uh, like I said, there's people that are coming in and uh, dealing with this, but they also 
kind of focusing on not you know getting the job done you mm-hmm. know and then not focusing on the you dealing with people you know that you have to have a approach you have to have uh you have to know <laughs> what you're doing yeah and it's, it's something too that you know i've spoken with other healthcare pro- professionals and they've talked about the challenges of meeting the demands of operational needs and efficiencies within hospitals yes. but also too on the flip side you know being expected to bring a human care or human element yes. to your day-to-day job so you know even notwithstanding the fact that somebody might be an immigrant but the the role itself how do you struggle or how do you you know go through those challenges and decide you know I need to be a little bit more human with this specific situation versus I just got to get the job done. Yeah, that's, and, and that's, I think that's another part of, uh, you know, mental health, you know, you are having to make a really hard choices uh, a lot of times, you know, you're basically looking at a resident, unfortunately, you know, like somebody who is more mentally declined, you know, you begin to prioritize as, okay, this is going to be more on a, you know, has to be done quickly and efficiently versus somebody who can communicate better than you you know you have a bit more of a human approach um that we wish you could have both ways right you wish Mm -hmm. and i I try as much as i can but you know i only have very very short time to do my morning care and making sure that everything is done because i don't have unlimited even though i'm there for eight hours a day i i don't have that time because you know that i have to deal with not only getting them ready for morning care but you know you have lunches and and breakfast to deal with so yeah it's a it's a hard choices that we have to make unfortunately and I think that's very also very unfair you know to be given to that to people you know I find it I find it pretty difficult absolutely and I think you know just listening to your story understanding how your personal experiences has translated into the type of man who you are who is able to recognize and have the vulnerability to share your story. Again, I keep coming back to this idea of that's probably one of the the biggest strengths that anybody can offer is to be authentically themselves, to share their lived experience so that others can learn from your your story. So I want to thank you for coming on the show today, for telling your story and, and being that shining light for so many that, you know, they might be in the darkness and are, are looking for something to grasp onto. So thank you very much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit the links in the show notes for resources and supports from the Care for Caregivers program. If you're interested in sharing your story on the Care to Listen podcast, please reach out to us at careforcaregivers.ca forward slash podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform to be notified when new episodes are released. Thanks again for joining us and see you next month.